Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, July 10th, 2018. Oh, we got all kinds of heresy on board for you today. (laughs) Steady as she goes, targets in sight. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, (gasps) self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that's teaching that is put forward for consumption by the average evangelical, it's far from biblical, it's far from sound, it's far from healthy. In fact, it's pus-filled and quite... Ridden with all kinds of diseases and things like that. And uh, we want to protect you from these false teachings and diseased doctrines, uh, which requires you to learn a little bit of biblical discernment and some of the basic rules of sound biblical exegesis and hermeneutics, vital parts of uh, learning how to, what God's Word says, what sound doctrine is, how to identify a good teacher versus a false teacher, you know, things like that. That's what we do here at Fighting for the Faith. So uh, we are in full swing back at it. And like I said, it's going to take me a few weeks to kind of catch up. And it's probably not going to be until after the PCR conference where things are going to give way. uh, (laughs) So my schedule can really kind of lighten up just a little bit so that I can uh, work through uh, what I can already see is going to become a backlog. So let's talk about then what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, and let's get right to it. Uh, we're going to begin with a, a new apostolic reformation update. We're heading over to Bethel Church, Redding, Cali, uh, Cali California. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to be listening to Chris Valatin literally butcher uh, scripture 
And uh, 1 Corinthians 14, where it explicitly says that women are not permitted to speak in church. And he's going to try to rescue this text. And it's clear he don't know no Greek is the best way I could put it. Uh, and, uh, you know, in, in an effort to make, make the scripture literally say the exact opposite of what it actually says. We'll be taking a look at that. This, by the way, will become a YouTube segment. Uh, then we are heading over to, uh, we are heading over to Elevation Church and we're going to be listening to their guest speaker and, uh, he's going to be explaining, uh, to us that if you will, God will. Yeah, this is a, a guest preacher there at Elevation Church. So uh, we'll be listening to him in If You Will, God Will. By the way, that's called a quid pro quo. And fascinating delivery. But uh, this is a fellow who is uh, quite the deceiver. We'll give more details when we get to that. Uh, somewhere in there we're going to have to take a break. And then in the second half of uh, the first hour... We're going to do a, a Joel and Victoria Osteen twin spin. We're going to begin with Victoria Osteen and uh, listen to a portion of her message titled Protect Your God-Sized Promises, which I have no idea what she'd be talking about there. And then we'll be listening to Joel Osteen's message titled Hearing in the Spirit. Hour number two, I hope you're sitting down. I've actually received several emails uh, requesting that I take a look at this sermon. Uh, we'll be listening to Paul Scanlon in uh, hour number two and his message titled, are you ready for it? The Power of Imaginary Friends. Yeah, and I'm not making that up. That is really the actual name of the message. You can find this online on YouTube. Uh, it was uh, published on May 12th of this year on Paul Scanlon's uh, YouTube channel, The Power of Imaginary Friends. That will be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We got a lot of ground we need to cover. And since we're going to begin with a new Apostolic Reformation NAR update, let's do this. Chief what do you want to do tonight? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. They're laboratory mice, their genes have been sliced. They're pinky, they're pinky, and the brain, 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 brain. Before each night is done, their plan will be unfurled. By the dawning of the sun, they'll take over the world. They're pinky and the brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain, the Twilight Campaign is easy to explain. To prove their mousy worth, they'll overthrow the earth. They're Pinky, they're Pinky and the Brain, 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 Brain. brain. So we're heading over to Bethel Church, Redding, California. Chris Vallotton uh, presiding, and his message, which appeared recently on his social media, titled "Keep Silent?" Question mark, where he literally engages in such obfuscation that he tries to take First Corinthians First Corinthians fourteen's prohibition of women speaking in the church and make it into the exact opposite of what it actually says and uh, this is sophistry 
of the highest degree. Here is Chris Valentin. The most restrictive verse in the entire Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are, sub- but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's improper for a woman to speak in church. Verse 36. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? Verse 37. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I wrote to you are the Lord's command. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Now, there's now I'm going to point out, he's read the text, and just on its face, it literally contradicts unambiguously, straight up, straight at it, uh, the practices of Bethel Church in Redding, California. Now, Let's take a look at the text first, and we'll look at the cross-reference and the cross-references so that we can see what the, what the Bible really says in this regard, and then we'll watch his different techniques to try to overthrow this passage in order to basically blunt it, deflect it, or in his case, he's going to try to make it mean the opposite of what it says. So if you have your Bible, we're going oh, to have it right here on the screen. By the way, the software I use is Accordance, A-C-C-O-R-D-A-N-C-E. So you can find it at accordancebible.com. And no, they do not pay me to say that. But uh, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We'll start halfway through verse 33 because that's where the context of this portion of the text begins. And we're going to just read it. And then we're going to look at a cross-reference because the cross-references help us. Because one of the important understandings of Scripture, in order to rightly get it, you must look at the cross-references because Scripture always interprets Scripture. So here's what it says. As in all of the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but they should be in submission as the Torah. Now, I'm translating namas there as Torah rather than law, because there isn't actually a commandment that says, Thou shalt not let the women teach in church or in the synagogue. I'll show you why it's Torah from the cross-reference, but just note that. So, they should be in submission as the Torah also says. In submission as the Torah. We'll talk about that. So, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So very clear, taken as a whole, as a unit, it very clearly says that women are to be in submission, as the Torah says, that they are not permitted to teach in church, and that it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. And then Paul even notes, was it from you that the word of God came? Are you the only ones it's reached? Mm-hmm. So if anyone thinks he's a prophet, they have to acknowledge that this is an actual command from God. Now, how do we know that's really what the prohibition is? Answer, Scripture interprets Scripture. And so here's our cross-reference. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11-14. through 14. Here's what he says. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather... 
She's to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So here we see why the submissiveness of the submission is important because this is a creation order thing. Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, the woman was. So this is why I translate namas from 1 Corinthians 14 as Torah because we learn about Adam and Eve and the order of creation and, and Eve's de- being deceived by the serpent from the Torah. That's what it means. So you're going to note the two cross-references blend together perfectly, and they explicitly say women are not to teach. Women are not to have authority over a man. Now, third set of cross-references, then, is going to be from other pastoral epistles. You can find these in First and Second Timothy as well, but we're going to take a look at Titus chapter 1, and we're going to note that there is a very interesting thing that goes on, and that is, is that the Apostle Paul gives instructions to Titus uh, as far as bringing, you know, setting up and establishing pastors in the church and watch the qualifications. So he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife. And his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, that's a pastor, as God's steward must be above reproach, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of the good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. Taken as a whole, then, all of these passages are saying and, and applying the same principle, the same, un, the same prohibition. It is only men who are permitted to preach and teach and have authority over men in Christ's church, and this is a command of the Lord. So, again, 1 Corinthians 14, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. They're not permitted to speak. That's literally what the prohibition is and says. And anybody who says otherwise is, is engaging in deception. But watch what Chris Vallotton does. His first move now is going to be to do what a lot of evangelicals do when they read a biblical text that contradicts their doctrine or their practices, and that is is that they go to kind of this blurring of distinctions where they'll say, well, some people think that it means this, another group thinks that it means this, and another group might think that it means this, and so you have all these contradictory ideas, and they basically say all of them are valid even if they contradict each other. And that is no way of determining what a text says or means. And that's his first go-to obfuscation method. Watch this. Two schools of thought. And I'm going to tell you about the first one. You've probably heard it if you've been in church for very long. And if they let women talk when they come through the doors, they have a reason for that. They, They think this is contextual. And here's what they think the context is. Men sat on one side of the room. Notice he's not looking at any of the cross-references. One school of thought thinks this is contextual. Check the cross-references. They all agree. Women are not permitted to teach in Christ's church. And women sat on the other side. And they thought, you know, during the teaching, that women would actually shout questions to their husband on the other side of the room. And there was this chaos. And therefore, Paul said, women, you're the ones causing the trouble. So... In church, be quiet. Don't talk at all. 
And so that's one way to solve the issue. Now, it is true that women sat on one side and men sat on the other. We know that. Yeah, that, that is true. That was a practice for many, many, many centuries, more than a millennia in Christianity. Um, you know, it's only within the past few centuries that that practice stopped. Through tradition, that that is traditionally true, that men and women did not sit on the same side of the church, on the same side of the room. Here's the, here's the struggle with that. First of all, we're not talking to the Hebrews who would have understood Old Testament law. Are you with me? In other words, if we were talking to Jews... We're not talking to the Hebrews who understood Old Testament law. Now, that's a weird argument. I'm going to do, um, I'm going to do a little word search uh, in the book of Acts. So, Corinth, and I'm going to type in and, and I'm going to look for synagogue. And we'll put that in there, and we're going to restrict this to the epistles, and we'll look for it in the book of Acts. Nope. Um, Let's do that. All right. Okay, Josh, I'm going to redo the search portion. You'll see that in a second, but I want to make sure I got this worked out. Found it. Okay. Okay, since I know what I'm looking for, I'm going to just kind of interrupt, and I'm going to go straight to Acts chapter 18. In fact, let me back the video up of Valentin and, uh, and re-listen to that segment, and, and uh, we'll go from there. So let, let's, I'll, I'll pick this up uh, 10 seconds prior. Here we go. First of all, we're not talking to the Hebrews who would have understood Old Testament law. Are you with me? In other words, if we were talking to Jews, it would make sense that men knew things that women didn't because men were taught the Torah and the women weren't. Are you now, with- a little bit of a note here. Um, we're going to take a look at uh, something that he seems to have overlooked. And that is in Acts chapter 18... Acts 18. In Acts chapter 18, we learn this about the church of Corinth. Let me read it out. Acts 18.1. After this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. Where did he see these Jews, by the way? In Corinth, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks, which, by the way, was Paul's normal modus operandi, and that was that he literally would preach the gospel in the synagogues to the Jews first. Aquila and Priscilla 
are Jewish believers in Corinth. So already we've got some Jews in the church at Corinth where uh, Chris Valentin is trying to paint the church at Corinth as completely filled with only but only uh, converted pagans. But um, that's not exactly true. Now it is true that they ended up reviling Paul and Paul ended up teaching to other people, but there was already a mixture of Jews, converted Jews to Christianity and pagans who were converted to Christianity there in the church at Corinth. So what he's saying is not historically or biblically accurate. We're talking to the Corinthians who were polytheists. They, they, they all came out. Not all of them. No, not all of them. Greek mythology. So the men don't know any more than the women do. Yeah, what about Aquila and Priscilla? They were Jews in Corinth. Just saying. Secondly, if this verse, if Paul was saying to them, you have to ask, listen, wives, ask your husbands at home, what do you do with the fact that Paul said it's better to not marry so all the women who have no husbands have no one to ask? Yeah, this is no way of doing exegesis. So what do you do with all the women who are not married, huh? (laughs) They have nobody to ask, so it can't mean that. That's not how you do this. And it goes on. Or now you're listening, I can tell. Or you're totally bored. And I'll just take that you're listening. The other way to answer this question is with this. Would you put that um, shot on the screen up, please? Now, this is the fun part. This is where he shows that he doesn't even know basic Greek. He doesn't even know the letters of the Greek alphabet. Alpha, beta, gamma, delta, zeta, eta, theta, iota, kappa, lambda, mu, nu. No, he doesn't know any of that. No, not at all. Watch this. The other way to read this question, the other way to read this is as a question. In other words, women are to keep silent in the churches. This is the one, this is a way that some theologians believe this should be read. Women are to be silent in the church. Now, some theologians, I, I got to point this out. There, there are no Greek scholars who are New Testament Greek scholars who buy into what he's saying. There, I found one person who put this forward as a possible uh, uh, alternative translation, and the woman was like an SJW feminist, you know, liberal lady. I mean, who thinks that white patriarchy is the bane of all humanity? For they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's improper for a woman to speak in church. Okay, after that verse, there's this little thing. That, that, that explicit of disassociation. Do you see that? Okay, that little thing is called the letter Ada. It's pronounced A. Hey, and no, it's not Canadian. <laughs> Expletive of disassociation. Oh my goodness! So he doesn't even know it's an Ada. He's not. He can't even pronounce it. Watch what he says. That little N, that thing that looks like an N. It's, <laughs> it's called an Ada. That little thing that looks like an N. He doesn't know Greek. He's never studied it. At the end of this verse, 
the the closest there is no there no, is no, no no it's not at the end of that verse it's at the beginning of the next verse no perfect translation for it in english which is why a whole but no translator translates it but it, okay i want you to hear that again he literally claims no translator translates this <laughs> this occurrence <laughs> of the of the of the word a okay which by the way this is silly in, if you were to take like Greek, first year Greek, you're going to learn your, your, your alphabet. You're going to learn about nouns. You're going to learn about d- nominative and dative and genitive and accusative. You're going to learn a little bit about verbs and stuff, but you're also going to learn about conjunctions or, or chi and 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 da, which is but. You're going to learn all this in first year Greek. A here is literally, I'm not making this up. It's, it's the conjunction or, and every first-year Greek student knows this. He calls it that little end thingy. <laughs> he ain't studied Greek before, but I want you to hear this again. He literally is going to claim nobody translates it. We'll show you some people who do, but hang on. At the end of this verse, mm-hmm. the, the closest, there is, no, there is no perfect translation for it in English, no, no. which is why a whole but no translation. Too mysterious to translate. Oh, man, there's no perfect translation for it. Translator translates it, but it means... Yeah, no translator translates it. Listen again. End of this verse. The, the closest, there is, no, there is no perfect translation for it in English, which is why a whole but no translator translates it, but it means what... No translator translated, but he's going to translate it, that, that, that N thingy. <laughs> no translator translates it, but he's going to translate that N looking thingy as what? Okay, let's t- take a look at the text real quick again. 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Corinthians 14, it's verses 35 and 36 that are in question. If there is anything they, the women, desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, the the word in question is right here. It's the beginning of verse 36. A, and it's literally translated as, are you ready? Or, yeah, in fact, look at that. The ESV translates it as or. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's impressive. So the ESV translated, he says nobody translates it. Yet the ESV translates it as or. And the reason for it is quite simple because it's or. Here's BDAG, which is the, uh, the number one uh, New Testament Greek lexicon out there. And here's your particle A, a marker of an alternative. Or, it's a disjunctive particle. You know, you can talk about to give or not to give. Either or. Yeah, this is how you translate this particle here. And it's just unbelievable. So, yeah. Or, was it from you that the word of God came? See, yeah, this, the, it, it, ESV has no problem translating it. NIV translates it also. Uh, and he said nobody translates it. And uh, here's here's the NIV. Did the word of God originate with you? Or, look at that, the NIV translates, or you know, A is, or, or did, are you the only people it has reached? Now, they, they change the order in the sentence uh, in order to make it more readable in English, but it's, they translate it as, or. And yet Chris Valentin says, 
No, 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 but oh, and yeah, it's it's really tough, tough, tough to translate that N looking thingy. He doesn't even know what he's talking about. He's not taken Greek. No way. Nonsense. It can't be. So he he's now translated as not or, which is what it is. It, it means what? It can't be that. This is crazy. It's at the end of this. Are you with me? No, it's not. So it's it would be- read like this. It's the beginning of verse 36. The women are to keep silent in the churches. They're not permitted to speak. They're subject to themselves, just as the law says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's improper for a woman to speak in church. What? No way. No. That is, see, he's literally, number that little N thingy, it's called an ADA. It means or. Yeah, or, or either, yeah. And he, by translating this, what may it never be? He's now mistranslating this in order to make the text say the opposite of what it says. This is obfuscation of the highest order by a man who demonstrably does not know Greek. No way. And then Paul answers with this. Was it from you the word of God first came forth? Or does it come forth to you only? And he goes on to say, I'm sorry. It goes on to say, If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's command. But if anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. Verse 36, the previous verse. Was it from you the word of God came first, uh, came forth, or has it come only to you? In other words, in between verse 35 and 36, there's that little line that goes, what? No, there isn't. That's the first word of verse 36, and it literally means, or. It doesn't mean, what? This this guy is totally deceiving. He has to overturn this text, because Bethel's practices are contrary to what this text actually says and means. And how do we know it means this? Not only does Paul say that once, he says it twice, and all of the uh, qualifications for a pastor are that they are men. This guy is deceiving people, and what he is doing is absolutely demonic in its deception. And he clearly doesn't know what he's talking about, hasn't studied Greek. It's obvious. And yet he thinks he's, he's, he's solved the problem. <laughs> no, he, all he's done is avoid what the real problem is. The problem is that Bethel is in direct rebellion against the clear prohibitions of the Word of God. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to be hearing from Joel and Victoria Osteen. We'll have to save the Elevation Church bit for a future episode. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Peter, James, John, and Paul are all dead. That means there are no living apostles in the church today. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. (laughs) 
Holiday's Birdcage Theatre presents Church Day Select. And now, Max Holiday's Birdcage Theatre proudly presents Sessions with Mildred. Now, Mildred. I have some very important information to show you in this next video. It's going to give you the tools necessary to know if you're hearing directly from God. But anyways, Dr. Barbie, we are going to talk today about symbols. Yes, I like Because symbols. oftentimes God speaks in symbols. So outside of symbols, what are some of the ways that God speaks to his people? Well, major ways through his word. But his Holy Spirit speaks to us and communicates to it through a symbolic language, through even signposts on the highways, through music, through the dance, through nature. The other day I was at your home and a dove kept flying by the window. And to me it was the Holy Spirit bringing messages through the dove appearing, which represents the Holy Spirit. So as you can see, Mildred, God talks to us in many, many, many ways in everyday life, which is why... you this. A Cracker Jack prize? Yes. I mean, no. Do you have any idea how many box tops I had to send in for this thing? Um, no. It was a lot. It doesn't matter. Anyway, what you see before you is, in fact, your very own Holy Spirit decoder ring. What does it do? What doesn't it do? When I turn it on, it has the ability to warn you when the Holy Spirit is trying to give you an important message. Like what? <laughs> I'll show you. We know that the Holy Spirit can talk to us in all kinds of ways. He could even be trying to send me a message through this radio right now. Hold on, let me change the station. for now. <laughs> Let me help you turn on the ring. I have a great idea. Why don't you take it out for a test drive? Aren't you gonna come with me? <laughs> you know I can't leave. Being under house arrest is so much fun. If I were to leave my house for more than 20 seconds, then the cops would show up and tase me again. And who wants that? Now here's how the ring works. When it beeps like this, that means that there's a sign that you need to see in the area around you. Um, Mr. Sunshine, when the ring goes off, how am I going to know what the message is? Trust me, you'll know. It'll be so obvious that you won't miss it. And on top of that, the ring will make this sound when you've guessed it correctly. It couldn't be simpler. You are now free to leave. I'm really sorry to have to bother you at your house. They told me that these sessions are a part of the pastor's vision and that if I don't go, it will be a sin against God. You think that somebody under house arrest would be free from any and all ministerial obligations, but no! I guess that would make too much sense. I'm sorry that I caused you so much pain. It's all your... I mean, not your fault. <laughs> my, my, look at the sun. It's time for you to go. Have fun with the decoder ring! 
wonder when this is gonna go off. I see a McDonald's. I see a sign twirler dressed up as a hot dog. And I see the town park. You want me to go to the park? Okay. Um, there's a dog eating grass. His owner is picking up the poop, and there's a bird flying towards the road. Is the bird a message? The little bird just got hit by the truck. I think I get the message. Uh, all I see now is a couple having a picnic by the pond. You are such a jerk! I think they just broke up. Um, there's a tetherball court, but there's no tetherball or rope, it's just a pole. I don't see any kind of message here. I think you're broken. I'm gonna take you off my finger now. Oh no, it's stuck. I'm gonna have to go get some soap from the bathroom. I can't let you do that, Mildred. Oh dear, it's become self-aware. Mildred, you and I are bonded as one. I am an instrument here to reveal his secrets to you. I will deliver his messages to you, for it is his will that you should know them. We are going to be together forever. Exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. <laughs> and what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, uh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. <laughs> to err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Hey everyone, it's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society and it's, it's coffee. 
There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee. And it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Yeah. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to Gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that uh, all of the churches that have women pastors preaching sermons are in rebellion to the clear instructions and prohibitions of the Word of God. Because they are. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew. Rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster, $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, click on the Donate button. If you'd like to become a patron via Patreon, click on the Become a Patron button. And if you'd like to support us the traditional way, the way you go about doing that, is by making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along, time for a Joel and Victoria Osteen twin spin. When I'm feeling lonely, sad sad as I can be, all by myself, an uncharted island in an endless sea. What makes me happy fills me up with glee. Those bones in my jaw that don't have a flaw, my shiny teeth and me. My shiny teeth that twinkle just like the stars in space. My shiny teeth that sparkle and beauty to my face. My shiny teeth that glisten just like the Christmas tree. You know they walk a mile just to see me smile. Shiny teeth and me. Oh, that's right. That, that, that song just, just, just puts a little lift in my step every time I get to sing it. So we're heading over to Lakewood, and we're going to start our Joel and Victoria Osteen twin spin with Victoria Osteen and her message about protecting your God-sized dreams. 
And we're going to point out the false narrative that is present in this doctrine because it is not a biblical look at what good works are. And uh, we're going to just blow this thing up as far as uh, her her twisting of God's word and other things. And then when we're done with her, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll take a swipe at her husband, too, and his uh, message on hearing in the Spirit. But uh, let's get to it. Here is Victoria Osteen and how to protect your God-sized dreams. Here we go. I encourage you today that you have the power of the living God on the inside of you. Do you ever get tired of hearing that? I don't either. And I think we constantly need to be reminded that God's power lives in us. You see, you're equipped. God's power is a little bit abstract, by the way. Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit. A little more than just power. You know what I'm saying? Power is impersonal and abstract. Uh, the Holy Spirit, notice the word holy that goes along with it. Yeah, see, that's something different. Morning. And I want to announce that you're equipped for your unique assignment. Mm. God has left nothing out that you're going to need for anything that he's called you to do. Oh, and- I'm equipped for my unique assignment. Wow. I, I, I'm so special. That's the false narrative, by the way. Let's t- do a little biblical work here so uh, you can kind of understand the danger of what we're hearing. Uh, here's what uh, the Apostle Paul, prophesying under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says regarding the days that we seem to find ourselves in. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. This is Second Timothy chapter 3. People will be lovers of self. Mm-hmm. Those are narcissists, lovers of money, you know, like the prosperity preachers, people like the Word of Faith teachers, like Joel and Victoria Osteen, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. And so you're going to note that this message, oh, you have a unique assignment. Oh, and God's going to, is going to reveal this on the inside and he's going to equip you because you have power inside of you. You are so important. Uh, this is, this displays into the narcissism of our generation. And Jesus calls us as Christians to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and then bearing fruit in keeping with repentance in good works. Let me give you another text. Ephesians chapter 2 puts it this way. Uh, Literally, the 10 most important verses in the New Testament, as far as like the epicenter and great rough outline sketch of, uh, of what the Christian life looks like, beginning before we are regenerate says this, and you, you, you Christians, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us up with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not the result of works so that no one may boast. And now here's verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Ergois. That's plural. Good. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, plural, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them or conduct our life in them, which then immediately begs the question, what are good works? Notice it doesn't say that God has called you to a special assignment. No, he has prepared beforehand good works for you to conduct your life in. And if you want to get an example of what those good works look like, then we look at the tail end of like one of the major epistles, like Ephesians or Romans. These are great places to go as far as looking at how Scripture defines what a good work is. So in Ephesians 5, we read, uh, you know, after Paul has told us, I mean, that we are saved by grace through faith, he now explains what good works are, and he says, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Sexual immorality, all impurity, covetousness must not be named among you, uh, as is proper among the saints. Now, funny enough, I don't ever hear the Osteens really railing against sexual immorality. Let there, no be, let there not be filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking. These are out of place. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Instead, expose them. It is shameful even to speak of what they, uh, what these the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, "Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead; Christ will shine on you." So you're going to note a call to holiness, a call to repent of our different sins of the flesh, and to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And he says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. And don't get drunk with wine. That's debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting one to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then here comes the, uh, uh, like a really good list, you can see, of the good works we're called to do because we do our good works in the different vocations or stations that God has put us in. So 
presently? Are you a husband or a wife? Are you a father, a mother? Are you a, a, a child, uh, uh, you know, living in your parents' home, uh, you know, underage and under their authority? Are you an employer or an employee? These are where our good works are lived out. So wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So husbands, this is how you are to care for your wives, as Christ has loved the church. Lovingly, kindly, patiently, self-sacrificially, not domineering. Um so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast, to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. This is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So you're going to note that raising your kids in the Christian faith, teaching them God's word, uh, and you know that's how you raise somebody up in the instruction of the Lord, so that they know their Bibles well. These are the the good works that we as Christians are called to do, which Christ has prepared in advance for us to do. And you're going to note that in the day that Paul wrote this, there were people who were slaves, bona fide slaves, who were converts to Christianity. And he nowhere says that they were called to greatness. Instead, he says this, Bond servants, these are slaves. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. And this then would apply to any of you out there. Do you work in corporate America? Do you have a boss? You know, so think how this then applies to you. Obey your boss with fear and trembling as you would Christ. And don't do your job by way of eye service as a people pleaser, but as a slave of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening knowing that he who is both master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So you get the idea here, all right? So good works are done in our vocations. You do not need to, uh, you know, to make a missionary trip to set up freshwater wells in Africa, although that's a good work. But you need to recognize that our good works are done in our everyday jobs as husband wife, father, mother, child, employer, employee. And this goes back to the idea that we are called and prepared in Christ to do good works, plural. This idea that God has a special and unique purpose or super special assignment for you, 
That nowhere does the Bible teach that. And that just plays into narcissism. And it's a perfectly great alternative narrative to biblical Christianity if what you're trying to do is scratch itching ears rather than preach the truth. But that's exactly what the Osteens do. They scratch itching ears. So listen to this. Not only has he thought about you, I liked what Cindy said, that his thoughts for you, his plans for you are good. See, he thought about us. He knew our assignment and he put everything in us that we would need. He knew our assignment. You just added to the biblical text. Nowhere does it say God knew our assignment. Every gift, every talent, our personalities, our dispositions, everything is just right. And then he did something one step greater. He put his power in us. He put his power in us. So you have the living God on the inside of you if you're a believer today. So I don't want you to feel ordinary because we all do. Sometimes it's just an ordinary life. We go to work, we come home, we eat dinner, we do it again, we get up. Now notice what she did. Don't think that you you were made for an ordinary life. And what is she describing? You go to work, you come home, you eat dinner. What I just read from Ephesians 5, going to work, making dinner, feeding yourself and your family and your kids, clothing them. These are the good works that God has created us to do in Christ. And notice she's eschewing that. Oh, You just need to despise all that ordinary stuff. No, no, no. You were made for greatness. You, oh, you have significance. Oh, there's some special assignment for you. So she's literally dissing the very good works that God calls us to do as Christians and not consider them good works, but instead, oh, consider them to be the ordinary things that are getting in the way of the great important things that God wants us to do. Listen to it again. I don't want you to feel ordinary because we all do. Sometimes it's just an ordinary life. We go to work, we come home, we eat dinner, we do it again, we get up in the morning, we go mow the lawn, we do this, we do... It can feel ordinary. And yet those are the very good works we're called to do. You remember Adam and Eve were created in order to care for the Garden of Eden. Even gardening and taking care of the property that you own or that you're stewarding is a good work. But I want to tell you something. God didn't save you. He didn't call you. He didn't choose you to be ordinary. No. So all of those things, you know, like feeding your kids, not important. No, he, he didn't call you to be ordinary and do that. You know, like paying for them to have braces and making sure that they're educated and, you know, and the small ones have their diapers changed. All that ordinary stuff is, that's not what God created you to do. Yet Ephesians 5 makes it clear that is exactly where we do our good works. And all of those things are our good works as Christians. He called you. To be extraordinary. Oh, yeah. And you got to understand because oh, you... Oh, I'm so extraordinary. I, <laughs> As if my ego isn't big enough. I'm now extraordinary. Yeah. No, this, this is wicked. This is narcissism. And this is a false narrative that undermines and undercuts the very good works that we're called to do in Christ. How's the living God... You are extraordinary. You're set apart. You're called by God. And he has assignments for you to do. 
You see, it's so interesting because sometimes people don't recognize as the call of God on our life. They don't understand the call of God. Or like I said, we may feel ordinary. We wonder if we're accomplishing what God even wants us to accomplish. Yeah, you don't have to wonder if you actually read the book. Yeah, yeah, no, no wondering necessary. Read Ephesians 5 and you sit there and go, oh, I'm already doing these great good works that Christ has called me to do by caring for my spouse and my children and doing a good job at work. Yet those are the very good works that Jesus will reward on the last day. And, and so you're going to note, when you believe that you have a special assignment from God, you know, God's supposed to whisper it in your ear after you've shown him that you're serious about it. You know, and you're always wondering, am I doing, is this really the assignment that God has called me to? I'm not sure. And the reason why you're not sure, because no biblical text says it. Do you think that Jesus would call us to do good works and then not tell us what a good work is? That doesn't make any sense. So often we determine the power of God within us by what's going on around us. You see, if I was maybe doing a little better, if God liked me a little more, this wouldn't be happening. Or maybe if I could just get a little closer to God, I wouldn't be going through this, this trial. But can I tell you something? That's the way man looks at things. In fact, God told the prophet Samuel, he said, you're going to anoint the next king of Israel. And I want you to know this one thing about this anointing. You're going to anoint the man that I call, but I don't want you to begin to look for what you think would be the king. I don't want you to look for the man that's the right height, the man that's in a certain position, the man that has the talents that you think would make a good king. Notice she's not reading the narrative from 1 Samuel 16. What's the point of actually reading a biblical text? Because if she were to read it, she couldn't be saying these things about it because it wouldn't make any sense. He said, because I don't look at things that way. That's the way you look at things. He said, you look from the outside. You respond to life. Yes, you see, and by her telling this story, see, you're just as important. You have as important of an assignment as King David did, you know, see, because God looks on the inside. Yeah, from the outside. But see, I am a God of the inside. Man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. Yeah, let's do a little uh, biblical work here. I'm going to do a search here in the Gospels, and I'm going to just look for the word heart. And let me limit my search to the Gospels themselves. And we're going to note what Jesus says about the heart. And um, (laughs) like, for instance, Matthew 12, 34, you brood of vipers. Notice it's red letters. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Uh huh. You know, this people has, their hearts have grown dull, Jesus says in uh, Matthew 13. And, uh, and so the, the idea here is, is that uh, the heart is actually the place where bad things start. In fact, Matthew 15, uh, Jesus says, what comes out of the heart, this is Matthew fifteen eighteen, proceed and proceeds from the heart, this defiles a person. Out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murderer, uh, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Yeah, those all come out of the heart. And so here she's saying, but don't worry, God looks on the heart. <laughs> Yeah, look inside your heart. You're going to find out, yeah, that's where the problem resides, lady. 
qualified today because God chose you to be qualified. He looked at your heart and he said, that's my child. He, he, he looked at my heart and said, that's my child. <laughs> no, when God looks at our hearts, he would say, you ain't my child. That looks like the devil's child. So, yeah, Jesus says out of the heart comes the problem. So this is not even the biblical gospel, okay? You, you could talk about how being born dead in trespasses and sins were, as one prophet says, we're born with a heart of stone, and Christ replaces that with a heart of flesh. You could talk in those terms, but that's not what she's doing. You know what I love about that is that God is the God of second chances. God is all... No, he's not. No, no. You see, if God were the God of second chances, you messed up the first chance. You're going to mess up the second chance, too. That's a lie. That's a, that's a totally different gospel. It, you, you, given a million chances, you'd blow a million of them. You still wouldn't get it right. Christ got it right for you. That's the gospel. He's inside of us working from the inside out. He's working on our thoughts. He's working on our actions. He's working all the time. God never sleeps. What text are you exegeting from now, woman? You're just like making up doctrines and blaming them on God. Never slumbers. He's always at work in the heart of a believer. David said it like this. He said, you teach me wisdom in my innermost parts. That's where you're speaking to me, God. Yeah, let's take a look at the context for that one as we get ready to wrap up our little look at this sermon. We won't do it in its entirety. Uh, the, uh, the part about God looking at our innermost parts is actually from one of the most famous psalms ever, and that's Psalm 51. And we'll, let's just pay attention to the context, by the way. The three rules for sound biblical exegesis are context, Context and context. And here's what David wrote. And note the occasion here. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. So, yeah, this is about Nathan the prophet calling David on the carpet for his adultery and murder. Yeah, his adultery with Bathsheba and then murdering her husband and then marrying the woman under the pretense that she was some kind of a war hero, uh, the, the widow of a war hero. Here's what it says, Psalm 51, we'll start at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart." Uh-huh. No, the context, when you read it in context, it ain't saying what she's saying it says. And then he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness and let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. 
And then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you delight not in in sacrifice, or I would give it, and you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Weird that she would make reference to Psalm 51 and totally ignore the entire heart of the matter. In fact, that's what the Osteens do. They do not significantly preach God's law to convict people of their sins. They do not preach the gospel and placard Christ and him crucified for our sins as the solution so that we do not have to be damned and spend eternity in hell. And worse, they fill people's heads with nonsense about them having super special assignments from God that he's going to speak to them and stuff. And yet all of their doctrines are based upon a false narrative and a twisting of Scripture designed to scratch itching ears and appeal to people's love for themselves rather than convict them of their love for themselves as the very problem, the very sin for which Jesus had to go to the cross and bleed and die. I think you get the point. All right, looking at the time, I did that two times today. I'm going to have to save the Joel Osteen portion of our twin spin uh, for a future installment of Fighting for the Faith. Maybe I'll get to those other two segments like on Thursday. But uh, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, sermon review, we're going to be listening to Paul Scanlon and his sermon titled The Power of Imaginary Friends. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms and rental cars today. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Listening to this program right now. 
Have you ever found yourself wishing there was more Fighting for the Faith content that you could listen to and share with your friends? Well, you're in luck, because we now at Pirate Christian Media have a YouTube channel that we upload content to on a weekly basis. We got programs like Twistbusters, You Don't Have to Be a Cessationist, Messed Up Church, exclusive Skype interviews, Pirate Gang Conversations, and our most popular segment, Dumpster Fire. So if you're looking for some extra pirate Christian media goodness in your life, head on over to YouTube and search for Fighting for the Faith and subscribe. too long. (laughs) But let's do this right. ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith, Word Equal Opportunity Sermon Reviewing Service. Today's sermon is delivered by Paul Scanlon, and boy, does this have a weird false narrative with it. The, the name of the sermon is The Power of Imaginary Friends. No, I'm not making that up. You could look this up on YouTube. It's there. And uh, we're going to see if we can make heads or tails of this, see if we can figure out what the false narrative is behind this thing, while pointing out the Bible twisting along the way. Recommend you make yourself comfortable. Fuzzy bunny slippers, if you have them, they do enhance the listener experience. But let's go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here is Paul Scanlon and the power of imaginary friends. Here we go. Great to be here, great to be in the Word with you, with our home church. God is doing great things here, but God is doing far more behind your back than in front of your face. So if the bit you know is fun and inspiring, imagine the bits that you don't know, the parts that you don't know. And you know, we're all going to get to heaven completely ignorant of most of the stuff God did for us. It's one of the reasons why heaven will be so amazing. Because only then will we have the benefit of seeing clearly and fully and seeing back over our lives all the things that God did for us that we never knew about. And I think that's probably why heaven and the worship in heaven and the praise in heaven uh, seems to be what is indicated to be in the book of Revelation. I think that knowledge, that awareness of God's amazing hand all through our lives that we'll have the awareness of them must fuel and fire that worship for all eternity. So 
We're thrilled at what God is doing and what we know about is amazing. I'm going to turn you to Genesis 15 verses 1 to 5. This is a brand new message um, that I am speaking to you today. So I'm thrilled to be taking this car for a spin for the first time from the showroom. The showroom is my heart. Um, where I incubated this message. I'm going to take it for a first-time drive with you today. I th- yeah, that, that sounds like it's dangerous. You, you incubated this message in your heart. Yeah, that's the place where Jesus says all the sin comes from. And uh, that's not the job of a pastor. The job of a pastor is to preach the Word. And if you're a pastor and you, you've been a pastor for a number of years and you've never worked your way exegetically in order to properly understand Genesis 15, which, by the way, is a vital passage of Scripture, um, then you're not qualified to be a pastor. So note, this is this is a new message. He's going to take it out for the first time ever. Yeah, no, you don't want innovation when it comes to uh, teaching Scripture. You want fidelity to the faith once for all delivered to the saints and revealed in the biblical text. It's a Ferrari, um, but I'm not sure. But when you first drive a message, it's best to be careful until you get used to handling it. So that's set up front as a disclaimer in the handling of this new message today. I want to drive it well and, and, and get used to the handling of it. <clears throat> Something when you're a communicator... You kind of understand what I just said to you. The rest of you are like, whatever, get on with it. So I'm going now. <laughs> Genesis 15, 1 to 5. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, you have given me no children. So a servant in my household is going to be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir. But a son coming from your own body will be your heir. God took him outside and said, look up. Everybody look up. God said, look up. Two words, look up. But the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. In Genesis 17 and 8 verses there, we won't read it for time, but quickly this is followed up, as you recall, by God changing Abraham's name. From Abraham, meaning exalted father, to Abraham, meaning father of many, father of many nations. And I'm going to speak to you from this passage today about the power of imaginary friends. The power of imaginary friends. You know, I just have to ask, what are you thinking? <laughs> what on earth is this nonsense? The, the reason I ask is because... This is a passage of Scripture that is interpreted for us in the New Testament. And the emphasis is not on the power of imaginary friends. <laughs> no, like not at all. Romans 4. Romans 4. I'll start at verse 13. The promise to Abraham and his offspring, 
that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, talking about salvation by grace through faith alone, but through the righteousness of faith. For if the adherents of the law who are, are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there's no transgression. So that's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, Abram believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old when he considered the, the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was, quote, counted to him as righteousness, counted to him as righteousness, which is a direct quote, by the way, from Genesis 15. So the emphasis is not on Abram's imagination, but his faith. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, no, far from it. Um, and, but for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So looking at the cross-reference then and working with the idea of Scripture interprets Scripture, the Lord assures Abram of his promise that he will not remain childless, that he will be the father of many nations. And verse 4 of Genesis 15 says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be the heir, uh, but your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look at the stars. And then verse 6, so he, he believed, Abram believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. So this is a seminal text that teaches salvation, by grace, through faith alone. Romans 4 makes it clear that the emphasis should be on his faith. God made a promise. Abraham believed. It was credited to him as righteousness. God makes a promise of the forgiveness of sins to all of us in Christ Jesus. We believe God counts our faith to us as righteousness. That's the whole point of Romans 4 as it properly interprets for us Genesis 15. But Paul Scanlon here thinks that this is all about the power of imaginary friends. Clearly, he might have a few of those, and that, I think, is the problem. Imaginary friends are things we associate with children. Any of you have an imaginary friend and you were a kid? Some of you are not willing to admit it because that person is still your imaginary friend. And now you're in your 50s. Need all the friends you can get, eh? Some of your children currently have an imaginary friend and we talk to other parents that have gone through that stage because we tolerate it, we feel a bit troubled by it because they interact with this imaginary person around other people who don't know our children and maybe think that they're a bit weird or a bit odd because they have an imaginary friend. But I promise you, 
Nothing you can say to that child as a, as a parent will convince them that imaginary friend is not real. It is so real that this imaginary friend alters their behavior and interrupts their thinking and entices them into behavior you perhaps wouldn't approve of and when you discipline them they say and mention the name of the imaginary child or friend that told them to do it. And so this imaginary friend is as real to that child as you are, as a real sibling is to them. And so what children tell us when I use this term, I knew you would think of that in your mind. And so rather than say don't think of that, do think of that because what children are telling us is that they are using this amazing gift of imagination that God did not give to any other species on earth. He gave this amazing gift that has amazing... Yeah, um, kids with imaginary friends, which by the way creeps me out and sometimes sounds like the demonic when you listen to some of the stories about imaginary friends. Um, imaginary friends have nothing to do with Genesis 15. Amazing phenomenal power to every single human being. And children use it effortlessly and without apology and without justification. But the older we get, the less we imagine. For the older we get, the more we live from our five senses. The more we live from what we can see and hear and taste and touch and feel and our reality. I don't know. I think if you live too much from your imagination as an, as an adult, then the people with the white lab coats and the restraints and all that kind of stuff come and get you. Is become governed by what we can touch and experience. Our reality is no further than our five senses and we get poorer and poorer at using our gift of imagination. And when God said to Abraham, as a 100 year old, not only childless but barren, the problem could have been him or his wife. These would have been the discussions today for this couple. But imagine now, he is a hundred, she is in her nineties and they have not been able to have children and this had been a huge pain in their life probably for 80 plus years. There comes a time when having children is not an option anymore as you know because of changes physiologically, biologi biologically in our bodies and they had well passed that stage so if it was ever going to happen. If they ever had a hope in all their trying for a child, there was no assisted pregnancy stuff back then. And of course, barrenness was a stigma in that culture, as it still is in many today. So all of these things were led into their lives, not just not being able to conceive a child. Abraham is significant. He is influential. He is famous. He is wealthy. He's a significant person in the community. All the more reason for him to ache with no air with no surviving heir, with no one to pass on his wisdom and his fortune and his influence and his good name to, knowing he'll never see not only children but grandchildren. And he and his wife, as they're getting up there, and that's getting up there for sure. Imagine, imagine how awful you would be convinced God's timing was to talk to you then about children. How rude. How insensitive. How ridiculous. What a ridiculous time to speak to us about having children. I want you to know today that God's timing 
is not yours. And sometimes it's not even close to yours. Sometimes God's timing is so ridiculously out of sync with how you planned your life. What on earth does this have to do with God's timing in my life? That's not the point of this text. So note how he subtly now made it about me, and this is then part of the false narrative. And the false narrative goes like this. The Bible is about you. It is a compendium of stories of people just like you who receive special assignments from God or special anointings, special callings. They were called to significance and greatness and miracles and all this kind of stuff. And and so you need to learn like they had to learn that if you have one of these great callings on your life, that, that God's timing in bringing this about may not be what you think it's going to be. It may be something completely different. But see, this text isn't about you. This is about God making a promise to Abraham that through his offspring the whole world would be blessed and he would be the father of many nations. And the fulfillment of that promise is found in Christ. He is the offspring, singular. Read the book of Galatians. It lays this out very clearly. And so this text ultimately is pointing to Jesus, not you. And the Bible is not a compendium of stories of people who receive special assignments from God the way you're going to receive one, too. This is not some recipe book for learning how to uh, learn how that God's timing isn't always the best thing, you know, or the easiest thing to understand. And that God, you know, and that, uh, well, Abraham had to learn, you know, that, you know, that God's timing isn't our timing. No, by the way, uh, what's going on here? Sarah is well past the age of childbearing. She has a barren womb. Again, this is all about Christ. Then you think of other women in the scriptures who also had barren wombs. You think of the mother of Samuel. Her name is Hannah. And you think of other people in scripture who had closed wombs, and then God opened them. Now, all of that points to Christ because whose womb is more barren than Sarah's? And that would be a virgin's womb. Virgin's wombs are barren. You dry, desolate places. That's the idea. And so these birth miracles are type and shadow pointing to what God's going to do in Jesus Christ in the fact that he was born of the Virgin Mary. The barren womb has... The barren woman has given birth, and her children are more than anybody's. You kind of, that's one of the major themes of Scripture that points to Christ in the virgin birth and the miraculous womb miracle there. But see, he thinks this is about you, and that's the problem. said, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Because it seems to me the more I look at lives like Abraham's and many people that I've helped and pastored over the years, the timing of God makes absolutely no sense. And destiny cannot be understood without the benefit of hindsight. You will Destiny, yeah. See, he's teaching the dream destiny thingy doctrine. You, you have a special destiny, a special purpose, a special calling. No, you don't. Never understand your life standing here trying to look forward. 
And so Abraham was in that scenario. He cannot figure this out. And I think that's why God said to him, come outside. He had, he had seen... You, you think that's why God said, come outside. You're not sure, but you think. Uh-huh. Stars many times. Why, why come outside and look up, which he'd done every night of his life, and look at the stars, because you could see them in that country. Why ask him to move, to physically move? Because imagination is visual. Imagination requires you to see something. Imagination requires your interaction and your involvement. And that's one of the reasons why I think it becomes dormant. Because it requires effort. And so God moves him and involves him in this relationship of physical movement. And physically lifting his head. In order to introduce him perhaps afresh to a dormant, latent ability within himself. Mm, that's why. See, see it, perhaps. Notice he said that. Perhaps the reason why God had him go outside and look at the stars was uh, to you know, bring about this, you know, to fan into flames this dormant, latent ability within himself. That's not exegesis. That's speculation. That's not how you teach God's word. Because, because Isaac that was he and Sarah's first child. And, and an imaginary child. And all the millions and billions of imaginary friends including us in this room today. We were in that looking up. When Abraham looked up that night he was looking at us figuratively, metaphorically. We are Abraham's imaginary friends. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he shouldn't have taken this uh, message out for a test drive. Nope, he should have left this one in the shop. It's a Frankenstein monster, folks. It's, it's on the loose. Hide your children. Please call the authorities. If you spot this sermon coming down your street, it'll destroy everything in its path and leave a wake of destruction behind it. Run away is the best thing I could suggest. We were all once God's imaginary friends. Before any of us existed. <laughs> we were all God's imaginary friends. Where are you getting this theology? Any of us were conceived, born into time and space and history. We already existed in the heart and in the mind of God. He imagined us. And that divine ability, that divine gift, for we were all created in the image of God, in the imagination of God, in the imagery of God, and we were all given in our... Whoa, whoa, whoa. Did you catch that wordplay? In the image of God, in the imagination of God, in the image... You see, he was engaging in wordplay there. To say that we were made in the image of God does not mean we were made in the imagination of God. Created beginnings, we were all given divine traits, divine abilities. And one of them that I think we need to talk about a little bit more in our churches, in our countries, in our cities. I mean, when you look at some political parties, policies and manifestos, you have to just say to yourself... This just lacks imagination. Hello. Please, is that all you can come up with? 
And I think what happens with our politicians and our city leaders and many of our church leaders is that it's not that we can't and don't want to progress and go forward, but we are disengaged and we are detached from this amazing latent gift called our imagination. And God created us with imagination. And this amazing gift is so underused. In Genesis 6... Yeah, I'm sorry, but Genesis 15 and Genesis, Genesis 6 are not about a call for us to repent of not using our imaginations enough. ...came together to build the Tower of Babel that God said in the Godhead. They said to each other, nothing they have imagined to do. Yeah, that was a bad thing. <laughs> the Tower of Babel is an account that is not positive... That's actually a negative. I mean, unbelievable. I, let's take a look at the account, by the way. You can find it in Genesis chapter 11. Here's what it says, starting at verse 1. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And by the way, after the flood, God had commanded the people, the human beings, to spread out, to take over the earth, to subdue it, and to... Uh, have dominion over it, and they didn't do that. They all clumped together. It became clump land. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks, burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And Yahweh said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose. Yeah, and the Hebrew word here, zim, yazamu, uh, is how it appears. Uh, it, you know, it could be imagined, but okay. So nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, or Babel, uh, because there the Lord confused the languages. So th their imagination there was not a positive thing. Uh, the imagination was being used in order to defy God's express command that human beings disperse over the earth. Nothing. Not just building a tower, whatever else they were incubating. Nothing they've imagined to do will be impossible for them. Imagine God saying that about your life. And there's no reason why he wouldn't because that hasn't changed. Uh, <laughs> except for this is an account where God judged them for their imagination. That when these ingredients came together amongst those people, which wasn't just imagination, but it was team, it was common language, it was one tongue, it was leadership, it was a passion and a work ethic. When all those things came together, led by imagination, God had to say, we better step in and do something about this. We better edit this. We better stop this happening. So God, as you know, gave them different languages that disabled them from having a common language that disabled them from having unity and stopped them building the tower. But, but God would say this about our lives and our countries and our churches. But rather than say, 
nothing they've imagined will be impossible to them. Let's go down and confuse this. God would say, nothing they imagine is impossible to them. Yay, bring it on. Yeah, why would God say that? How are you figuring? Which biblical text would lead you to believe that God would say, now we can use our imaginations and yay, bring it on? You would say, you said God would say, but you've just taken God's name in vain. You've added words in and put them in God's mouth that he has never spoken. He is not intervening or editing or blocking or stopping what we are imagining. And yet we that are God's children on the planet often are some of the weakest imaginers of what is possible in and through our lives and our churches in this country and around the world. Imagination is the ability to form a mental image of something that is not yet perceived by our five senses. It is the ability of the mind to build mental scenes, mental real estate, which are a preview of your life's coming attractions. Many of you here were my imaginary friends 20 years ago. When this church had a negative growth of 300 people. (laughs) I didn't call it growth then, but I've come to realize since then that sometimes people leaving your life is as much growth as people joining your life. For people leaving your life makes room for others that cannot and should not come until some people have left. Again, you only realize that with hindsight at the time it's just painful. And I'm not talking about one or two, I'm talking about hundreds of people over a three year period left this church, good people, who just couldn't buy in to the new ideas that we were having at that time to reinvent our church. And I. Mm, Yeah, so those poor people just didn't have imagination. So clearly, at some point, he made the change to become seeker driven. Relevant and uh, and no longer like old school church. That's what he's referring to in their history there. I remember so many lonely days where all I had was my imagination. And so I understand what it is to look up because I stood in my office over there and I looked across at this land here that was just rough with old concrete slabs from the woolen mill that was on this site and it was undeveloped and we'd, we'd dug a gravel path to try and get cars up onto here and it was unpleasant and it was muddy and filthy in the winter but we parked cars up here on this rough land and I began to realize by 1998 that God wanted me to despite people leaving us and us going down financially and numerically and in our gift that was being drained from our church because leaders were leaving. We lost all of our band. And as I looked out of my office and looked across at this piece of land, I was quietly, privately thinking about a building that would be here one day. And I felt like Abraham. Why? Oh, yeah. See, there's the tie into Abraham. He, he had the vision for the future of their church and and he felt like Abraham God was taking him out and showing him what was going to be and using his imagination 
talk about missing the whole point of the story of Abraham, and specifically Abraham in Genesis 15. world would I be imagining a 2,000-seater building when we had a 700-seater building and our congregations going into half? It was ridiculous. It, it, the timing of that idea coming to my mind made no sense like many things going on in your mind right now. And yet I found it growing and I found God watering it, not discouraging it. I knew I had to be careful who I told and so must you about what you're imagining about your life today. And I rem- Yeah, you need to be careful. You need to be careful. I remember looking up, looking across out of that window day in, day out. Looking at this piece of land, uninspiring, bland, oblique landscape. And looking at it and thinking about a building. I didn't know exactly what it would look like and what color it would be and what the stage would be like. But hey, this, this room was my imaginary friend. These TV screens and these TV cameras were my imaginary friends. I remember in the late 90s, early 2000s, imagining what if we could be on television. We could use the facility of television that had newly come to our country through God Channel. And we could be the first church in our country to go on TV. A crazy idea when all the tithes are going out the door and people are leaving the church And I imagined our church being on TV around the world and we had no money and we had no expertise and we had no resources. And I remember so clearly I asked three people if the following Sunday they would bring their tripods to church. Not camera tripods, not not TV camera tripods, just, you know, photographic tripods. They weren't even like the real deal because I didn't know where I could get them from and I had no money to even hire them. And I put three tripods in that building over there that was our main Sunday service gathering point, as you know, some of you. And I put a tripod in the middle, and I put two at the sides, and I said... Are we done with the Bible now? We're hearing a lot about you, Paul. Nothing about what Scripture actually says. Nothing about them, and people were just, what is this in the way? What idiots left this in the aisle this morning? And I just had to put up with all of that... Because I, I thought I would be the same, feeling the same about those things there. Then I stood up and I said to the church, you know, I feel that we should be on television. And I could feel this groan in the church because they all knew their friends and family were leaving. And our church was in trouble and in decline. What a stupid time to get up and talk about going on TV. The word TV brings pound signs to your eyes. When I said TV, I felt money leaving me. (laughs) Money I didn't have that wasn't coming to me. Money was already leaving me. And now I'm talking to you about TV. And I said, and these tripods this morning are what I imagine. It's what I imagine that we would put cameras. I'm no expert, but I imagine that they'd go there. And I had those tripods in that room Week in, week out. And I think people thought I was crazy like they thought Abraham was crazy. Because when he went around saying, hey, I'm the father of many nations. It's interesting God didn't say to him, 
Move to a neighborhood that has a name that fires your imagination. Move to International Street. Change the name of your dog so that when you call your dog, you're using a name for your dog that inspires you to imagine what I told you from the stars. God said, I'm going to change your name. Imagination is forensically personal. It is to do with you. Not the things around you, but you. It starts inside you. And so God changed his name. And imagine every time his name, and I don't know whether him, his life were, him and his wife were embarrassed about it or laughed about it. I don't know what they did, but he had to go around and say to his business associates and his friends and his staff and everyone in the community, please don't call me that anymore. Call me Abraham. What? Call me Abraham. You do know, don't you, that Abraham means the father of many nations, means the father of multitudes, and you don't have any kids and can't have any kids, and we have all agonized over that with you. How embarrassing, how awkward, how difficult. And yet God wanted to put tripods into his world. God wanted to put... What? No, again, you're reworking the biblical narrative to fit your theology using a false narrative. Something in his world that was a fixed point of triggering his imagination day in, day out. I had those tripods midweek, one of them I asked to keep in my office. So I was looking at it every single day. The church only saw them and some tolerated it, knowing that this was a bad time to talk about TV. About a month in of these tripods in the room, am I doing my silly thing? As I'm sure some people felt it was and told me it was. And the timing was ridiculous because of the money and people leaving and so on. And I remember one Sunday morning speaking about the possibility of what TV could do. And how we could get the word of God out and how we could help people. And I believe that God had called me to be a communicator. And so this was something that would strengthen certainly my gift. And it would be something that would strengthen the profile of the church in our country. And I'm talking about this. And I, I was one week talking about it. And I was so weary looking at the people so beat up as was I. So demoralized, so discouraged because so many people were leaving the church. I remember one morning dragging myself up to get on stage and dragging myself up inside to speak to the people. And these stupid tripods were now intimidating me back. Like the stars every night intimidated Abraham. Well, we're all still here and you've got no kids yet. So which text says the stars intimidated Abraham? What's God playing at? What a stupid game God is playing with your emotions, Abraham. These tripods every week infuriated me. And yet I knew something was happening in my journey as an imagineer. A, a journey as an imagineer. Don't they work for Disney? As I somehow found a way to bring together my ability to imagine and re-engineer our church and I was stood at the edge of the stage in that room over there I remember it now to the right hand side of the stage as I am now I remember talking about TV and pointing to this 
tripod yet again and it felt so old and so no buy-in. And I could understand that. And a man stood up and walked slowly forward and handed me a check in front of everyone. And it was a check for 2,000 pounds. And he gave me that check and he said, I believe that this is what God wants us to do. And I, I quickly grabbed him before he went. I didn't mean for more money. I said, I said can, I, can I tell the people what just happened? Can I tell them? He said, yes. So I turned back and I said, you know what? This man came forward. Name was Jeff Nundy. And Jeff gave me that check. And I said, Jeff just came forward and gave me. What does this have to do with Abraham again? You're not telling me anything that helps me understand Genesis 15 at all. Check for 2,000 pounds. I said, that's the first money anybody's ever given. I've been talking about this for weeks to the church. This is the first money anybody's ever given towards our TV ministry. And with this money, we're going to try and buy our first camera. And that's what we did. With that £2,000 check, I bought a first camera. I had no tripod for it because these were not right. I had no one to operate it. We had no one who knew how to operate cameras. And I didn't realize then, I do now, that a camera is the cheapest part. It's everything else that now you need with that to create a picture and to create something you can send off to go on TV. But that was the beginning of the journey. So, these TV cameras and our church being in the media and online and on television were my imaginary friends. As was this building, as were you and during crossing over I realized that my my current reality was so miserable and, and this is what I want you to see today because some of your reality today is so miserable and, and this is what I began to realize listen to me carefully imagination itself is a huge act of courage For you to find the strength to imagine better. And you know what? Start small. Can you imagine a day? Just one day. Can you imagine one day without pain in your body? Just start there. I'm speaking now so you can sit down and talk to me afterwards if you like. Okay? Thank you. You're on next week. Just start where you are. Can you imagine one day or half a day without prescription medication? Can you imagine one night's sleep? Can you imagine having one area of your life that's debt free? Don't bite off more than you can chew because then you'll tell yourself this thing doesn't Do I need to use my imagination to repent of my sins and be forgiven? Because though he's looking at the stars in the sky, he was going to start with one child called Isaac. And imaginary friends 
And friends are a metaphor, by the way, as well this morning as you've gathered for opportunities. Imaginary opportunities, imaginary breakthroughs, imaginary shifts and changes in your life. But start small, start somewhere. Because I imagine this building, I imagined it full. I imagined it full many times over. I imagined agreement. I imagined when this man came and gave me a chance. I imagined. I, 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 he's preaching about himself. The text, Genesis 15, points to Jesus. It triggered me imagining people doing that regularly because I saw it. I saw it. And here's what I've discovered about imagination. You have to see something. And you have to teach your mind to do this. To capture what you see. That's why God said, look at the stars. Knowing that forever afterwards it was something he could do at will. Look at the stars. Look at something. I remember the first, the first time we began to reach the poor in our city in the late 90s. And we began to intentionally, as that song taught us, we intentionally, not casually or by default, we intentionally went after the poor in our city. And intentionally went to where they lived and intentionally went to where they slept, the homeless. And intentionally stepped into the mess of their lives and their awful reality. And I knew that as we arrived at their world, our worlds were so different to theirs. And remember we decided once a month, inspired by our Dream Center friends with Tommy Barnett. We decided once a month here on site, we didn't have this building, just that building at this stage. To once a month bring all in the homeless, feed them. And so we began to do that. And then we decided that once a month we would also offer to them haircuts, dentistry, basic hygiene. And then we decided that we would ask the church to send and bring in clothing. So that once a month when they came, the down and outs, if they wanted to, could get a shave and a haircut. And if they wanted, they could go and choose clothes to wear. I'll never forget that the first time I saw one of the roughest, smelliest, dirtiest, down and outs you've ever seen. And I went into that building when all this stuff was going on and I saw him mid-makeover. And I saw the hair coming off his face and I saw his hair getting tidied up and his skin being washed. And I saw someone cleaning out his ears. There was so much stuff in his ears, it was unbelievable. And I saw him getting this makeover and then I I remember so clearly watching him see himself for the first time in a mirror. And I, I didn't look at the mirror, I looked at him looking at him in the mirror. And I remember saying to him, first thing came to my head, I said, hey, it looks like you're going for a job interview. And you know what he said to me? He said, I might just do that. I might just do that. Why? Why not say... Yeah, is he now a penitent believer in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sins? Why not say, I might just do that in the last five years? 
That's always a good idea. Improve yourself. Get up. Get a job. Change your life. Why not do that in all these years earlier? Because he needed to look up. To see the stars. To see the tripod. To see the man coming forward to help him. And he saw himself in the mirror. And I could see his imagination woke up. And went into this raging flame inside him as he saw himself. And you know, his imagination woke up. Was he brought to penitent faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of his sins? Is he still on his way to hell? For a job interview, and he got a job. And within one month, he had a job working at a local garage cleaning cars, and he absolutely loved it. His name was Michael. And Michael became, became my imaginary friend. And I knew there were hundreds like him in this city. But as I watched how he changed, I knew that change would not come by me wishing it on him. Change would not come by just being around people that want you to change. That Michael had to see himself, imagine himself different to how he saw himself. And that triggered him to get up and pick up and begin to change his life. And I realized for him and for some of you today, imagination is going to be a huge act of courage for you today. When your current reality is so miserable. I mean, God forgive us, God help us, the stuff we whinge about. We should drop you in Syria for a week. It would cure you for life. When you, when you contemplate how harsh, how demoralizing, how depressing most of the world's daily reality is. I think all we can start, the only place we can start with them is their imagination. I remember walking. What about all of that misery being the result of our sin? Yeah, this doesn't seem to be on his radar. Cape Town years ago. And and, and because people begging everywhere. If you've been to that part of Africa. I remember walking from where I got dropped off in a car to the hotel. Past a bus shelter. And a homeless man was sleeping in the bus shelter. And I walked past him. And I trained myself by then. And so must you. Not to be afraid of these people. They're human beings. They are perhaps your imaginary friends. And you never know the circumstances. That put them in that situation. I remember looking at this man. And I walked past him. And I decided to engage him. In his eyes. And he looked at me from a sleeping bag. And gave me the hugest smile. And as I walked by. His smile lingered in my mind. And I said to myself. If he can smile. Cue sappy music. This is an emotional manipulation technique. Designed to create the false impression. That God the Holy Spirit. Is now descending on the audience. We're wrapping up. The decisions have got to be made, you know. Maybe the decision to use your imagination or something. You know? Then perhaps he can laugh. And if he can smile and laugh, perhaps he can change his inner disposition. Perhaps he can trigger something 
chemically, internally. Maybe he can change. Isn't that what repentance and the forgiveness of sins is all about? Bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You've heard of Christian sanctification, right? Create a new idea, a new thought. Maybe, maybe the greatest shifts in life you will ever have start with a smile. When your reality tells you, you have no right to smile. And your reality shouts you back into line and says to you, who do you think you are? Yeah, none of this has anything to do with Genesis 15. Like, not at all. You're in a culture and an economy, and in his case, a racial group and a system that is all against him. And yet he found the ability to smile. I'm absolutely convinced that Jesus lived his days with a completely different reality to the people around him because you cannot on any regular basis you cannot sustain mentally what it requires to open blind eyes and see the sick healed and people delivered and liberated and lives changed you cannot consistently sustain that unless you enter people's reality with a different reality in your mind about what's possible for them so when Jesus said to the blind man be healed or Jesus deliberately intentionally stepped into people's mess he was not afraid that their reality would overwhelm his imagination perhaps in the three decades when he heard nothing about him in complete anonymity when people say I want to be like Jesus they don't mean that bit I want to be anonymous for 30 years I want to be out of the limelight for 30 years. I want to just figure some stuff out before I go public, as it were. Maybe someone in that three decades, he had trained his imagination. He had incubated imaginary friends. Because <laughs> he could do all that stuff prior, but he didn't. He held it. And Mary knew who he was. He had to hold it. So, so Jesus incubated imaginary friends. Not sure what Bible he's reading, but wow, that's bizarre. He could have said, look, you can do amazing things. Don't let your dad die. Clearly Joseph died. And Jesus could have healed him or raised him from the dead, but he didn't. But I think he saw it and must have let him fire something in his imagination about there'll be others in your life that you will step in and intervene in and the pain and the pressure that he went through in losing his own dad he could feel that in other people's lives as they lost people close to them and knew that there would come a day when he would step into their world intentionally not by accident intentionally step in he intentionally got himself in the way of people's awful reality because he had something else on board that they didn't have and it became his gift to them I'm going to put a picture on screen and I finish this is a lady called Amy Purdy there she is Amy lost both legs at 19 years of age to bacterial meningitis. 
this is really kind of a self-help pep talk. This is not really a sermon at all. She went into, she says, a deep depression, which we can all understand. She said, I slept for months with prescription medication to help me to just get away from this living nightmare of losing both my legs because not only was she a natural, normal, fit, healthy 90-year-old, she was a brilliant snowboarder. And she had dreams of being a champion snowboarder. And at 19, she lost both her legs. And that was cruelly snatched from her, as has been for some of you or people you're thinking about today that are not here. Amy says she realized eventually, months into this five senses brutal reality, She realized that to move forward, she had to let go, she says, of the old Amy and embrace a new Amy. And the new Amy didn't have legs. Then she says, I realized that when her first ugly, bulky, the most ugly, bulky, prosthetic limbs you've ever seen were delivered to her house, when she saw how ugly and terrible they were, she went into weeks beyond that of depression a month in she says I began to realize hey I can have prosthetic legs I don't have to be 5 foot 4 anymore my feet will never get cold anymore when I'm snowboarding and she began to imagine herself skiing and snowboarding at a competitive level and she said if if my life was a book and I was the author How would I want it to read? And so she imagined chapter after chapter in that book. Look up. Look at the tripod. Look in the mirror. She imagined herself being a champion snowboarder. Within three months, she was back on the snowboard. And she recalls one day on the slopes, freaking out all the skiers. When she fell and her snowboard carried on down the hill with her legs attached to it. She said, I realized that my obstacles can either stop me or force me to become imaginative and creative in my mind. She went on to win two World Cup snowboarding gold medals. She is still now, she is still now the world's highest ranking female adaptive snowboarder is called. In 2006, she founded a charity for disabled athletes that have been helped all around the world. She said, the loss of my legs did not disable me. It actually enabled me to live a life at a level I never dreamed possible. What are, who are, where are... Is she a penitent believer in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of her sins? And will she spend eternity with Jesus or in hell? Which is it? Are your imaginary friends today? Because if you can just hold on to another day, another week, another month, and continue to keep company with them, your life, weeks, months, years from now, your life will look differently. I'm standing in my imagination. Yeah, this is self-help. This has nothing to do with Christianity or biblical sanctification 
or even especially the story of Abraham. I'm looking at what I imagined. What's your equivalent of those things in your life? Let's stand together this morning. Time's gone. Done. Wow. They're, they're applauding that. But uh, none of that was even remotely biblical or true. Wow. And nobody was heard anything about their sin. Nobody heard anything about Jesus Christ crucified for the forgiveness of their sins. No, not, I mean, even the pagans and their inspirational story, none of that had anything to do with the cross at all. But, yeah, that imagination and the power of imaginary friends, whoo, yeah, this will really change my, no, it's, it's nonsense. Utter and complete nonsense. From a man who knows that Scripture tells him to preach the word, and yet he won't. Very sad indeed. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.